0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller?
2: listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Howdy, y'all. Hopefully, this summer is kicking off very, very well for you. I know it is for me. We have a great guest on the show today. His name is Brian Fair. He is the vocalist for Overcast, for Shadows Fall, and he is just a, in my mind... A New England metal and hardcore legend. This dude has uh, done a lot within the context of independent music and has been able to, you know, spin it into a career that spans for many, many years. And uh, I've just always really respected his, not only his bands and his art, but his own personal music taste. Like he definitely doesn't just stick to a lane. And, anyways, all that to say, I have Brian on the show, and I'm very excited about that because we uh, we go deep into his uh, his background, why he cares about music so much, you know what he's been uh, up to ever since uh, you know Shadows Fall started to uh, turn down their touring life and all that stuff. But uh, first of all, checking in, how are you? The world is, is wild now because. I mean, I'm sure you are feeling that uh, that impact of like all of a sudden there's a ton of things happening, you know, shows are coming back, tours are getting announced, everything is, uh, you know, seemingly kind of locking back into a normal cadence, whether that's being able to hang out with friends and, you know, all that sort of stuff please be take care of each other you know be safe do everything that you need to do in order to make sure that this uh this weirdo virus just stays contained um you know i'm definitely seeing people more and more uh, i got to participate in record store day which i'll talk about that in a moment but ultimately take care of each other and make sure that uh, we're all being safe because that's uh, that's the only way that the world will really truly turn back to normal and then obviously also get vaccinated you know just just do that please i'm not even going to really go into much more detail on that, but just get vaccinated. That'll, that'll help us all get back to shows in a much more real way, but record survey, let's talk about this. So I actually went to a program skate and record shop in fullerton california here a great place if you have not ever gone there and you were in the southern california area you absolutely have to go there um you know independently run one of the uh vocalists not one the vocalist for death by stereo and voodoo Gold skulls and manic hispanic Ephraim. uh and i don't know why i haven't had him on the podcast he's an old friend but anyways he is a co-owner of the sh- of this shop and uh it was i i have a I guess you would call it a love-hate relationship with Record Store Day. Record Store Day has been a boon to independent record stores and has brought a lot of people in the doors to these places that they normally may not ever go into in the first place. But, you know, due to the limited nature of a lot of these record pressings and all that stuff, it brings people in. And obviously that is a great thing because it helps record stores stay in business. On the other hand, Um, You know, where are you the rest of the year? Are you buying your vinyl via Urban Outfitters or, you know, Amazon? It's like, buy it directly from record labels or, you know, buy it from independent distros, you know. Like, do do that on a regular basis, and that definitely helps out uh, our independent music community. And so there is – and then plus, like, the resources of allocation of records that are being pressed. Like, there's a lot of records that are coming out on a, you know, record-store-day basis that, you know – each year as the, the list comes out, I look at it and there's less and less that I'm interested in. That could just be to my own personal changing taste or the fact that a lot of other labels are seeing this as a quick quick way to, you know, make a, a few shekels off of repressing, you know, uh, <laughs> old records or, you know, finding archived music and not to say that there's anything entirely wrong with that. But, you know, you, you see those records that come up that just feel like absolute cash grabs and that's what bummed me out. So how, what do you feel about Record Store Day? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Where where do you sit? You can email the show, 100 wordspodcast at gmail.com. Always love to have that feedback. Or if you have other guest ideas, because uh, I really like it when people come in and either introduce me <laughs> to people who are like, hey, this would be a great guest for reasons A, B, and C, and then uh, we make it happen. Uh, or if that's just you know aspirational, being like, hey, that would be great if you had this person on the show. So that's what we got. Let's uh, Let's talk to Brian Fair. Like I said... Legend in my own mind, um, you know, I am describing him as such, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we we have a lot of fun in this. So let's talk to Brian. And I, I definitely played a terrible show with you before when Overcast came through uh, Showcase Overcast Theater. Overcast
3: we've played many terrible shows in our existence, so, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly, you know, for sure. It was definitely, I. the reason it was so terrible for us was because, uh, you know, this is us being a dumb local band. Like, we broke our guitar string, and then I was sitting there in front of a sold-out Showcase Theater uh, asking if anybody had a guitar we could borrow, which is clearly, you know. Not a good. Move. Well,
3: it's clearly the most '90s hardcore thing that's possible. Because I mean, who hasn't that, who hasn't done that at some point in their existence? And it, with, totally. what's so great is the idea of a you know backup guitar becomes you know down the road such a normal thing. But then it was unheard of. Like, what do you, you think? I have two of these things? No way. I don't have two of these things. You know, I'm lucky I have
2: one. <laughs> no, it, it's very true. Yeah, just and the the notion that like once people like had uh you know uh, like a guitar rack, it was like oh my god, like I don't have to like. <laughs> You know, precariously balance this guitar on my amp. It's like, <laughs> yeah,
3: totally, like what? A, what a novel idea! Who thought of these things? You
2: know? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, but so, I mean, th- that was you know one of my earlier experiences in being a fan of Overcast. But I remember um, you know following you from uh, obviously Overcast to Shadows Fall. It was really interesting because, <laughs> and I- I'm sure you're going to laugh at this, where um, I-, I know people started to be like, "Hey, Shadows Fall, like you know, like they're pretty good. <laughs> they have this record called you know of one." blood that basically sounds like a more professional cave in. I was like I was like, "Oh, interesting." Like, okay, I didn't, uh, you know, uh, the the notions of what Shadows Fall was at the time, you know, was basically for lack of a better term, a, you know, metalcore influenced band or whatever. Um I was, but I, I just was was taken aback by that that kind of description because it was like, well, these guys come from the same scene, so it's not like necessarily they are like trying to be a more professional version of Cavan or something like that. I just that, found that it is honestly
3: a hilarious description. Just because it's funny because I think of Caven as such a professional band. I'm like those guys knew how to write songs with hooks and stuff, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but that that's hilarious. Uh, if anything, I was like, we were stealing more thrash metal at that point in the Ugh One Blood days than anything else, or or actually a lot of Swedish death metal too. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, and and that's a good point, and that actually you know dovetails nicely into the kind of you know question where it was, it, it, you know, and then in listening to it with that sort of context, I was like, oh yeah, like I could see where maybe someone was making that comparison, but it's like, yeah, you guys were you know pulling from obviously different influences than. <laughs> It's not like you started up but like once you joined the band, like, all right, guys, like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to sing. I'm going to scream like this is what we're going for. Um, But I I presume that like once you came into the band and things became a little bit, you know, more quote unquote serious, um, you guys were all just bringing your influences to the table, right?
3: Yeah, well, that first, especially of one blood, it's it's such a blender of our influences because, you know, we were still trying to figure out exactly what we were going to sound like in that. You know, it was my first record really writing with the guys. We used a few older songs from the uh, somber Eyes from the Sky era. But we were really trying to figure out what we were all about. And musically, at that point, we had a common kind of bedrock, whether it was thrash metal or like a lot of what I consider metalcore, which is like Leeway, chrome mags uh, you know, Early Life Agony, that type of stuff. Um, And thrash metal, like the Bay Area stuff. Testament was a huge one. We were all super into um, and you know, obviously at the gates and in flames were an influence, but then outside of that kind of common ground, we all came from very different places. Like our drummer at the time, uh, who was known as the knife back then, uh, Dave Jermaine. I mean, that dude pretty much listened to like Ween and like ska, you know? So I remember we had to teach him like a blast beat cause he didn't have a real reference point. we're like, imagine a polka going like, you know, methamphetamine fast, you know, <laughs> and he figured it out. So and then like, you know, Paul was kind of the old punk rocker who was, you know, grew up on The Clash and like, you know, real old hardcore, like, you know, SSD, DYS kind of stuff. And then Johnny Rock and Roll, our lead guitar player, was just a child of Sebastian Bach and, and, and you know, Guns and Roses and stuff. So even though he was born after that stuff, which is crazy. So we were bringing all kinds of shit and you hear it in that first record where like, man, we let it all out. You know, there's there's riffs that have that kind of thrashy metalcore sound but then there's stuff that could have been like no effect style drum beats and then like weird other you know just all kinds of influences on that one where we were just throwing it all at the, at the wall at that point
2: yeah for sure and that honestly i mean that's very indicative of that time too because there was so much experimentation within the context of heavy music where people were just like well yeah like you know let's combine this riff salad and see what comes out
3: that that was definitely the time and I, I look at the bands we went on those first early tours with it would be like shadows fall candiria bane and like all out war and you're like all right we just covered like pretty much every direction that heavy music is going in in the next few years you know like, right. like and those eclectic kind of bills and we all were influenced each other by being like oh cool the rules are just kind of getting thrown out the walls are kind of crumbling between genres Unfortunately, it it did spawn the super hyphenated subgenre insanity that would, you know, (laughs) kind of come next, where instead of just calling it, you know, heavy music or hardcore or metal, it had to have three hyphens, you know. But uh, at at that time, all bets were off, you know, And, and you look at the bands, you kind of really started getting their stride at that time, you know, like whether it was Converge or Dillinger Escape Plan, Ourselves or Killswitch all doing different kind of stuff, but like not afraid to just say, fuck it and go for it. You know?
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Totally. Just like, Hey, we're putting this out there and you know, if you like it, you can follow along. If not, you know, find the bands that we're touring with. <laughs> or whatever. There was
3: also, there was literally no real ideas of like, Hey, you could make a living at this. And it's like going to be a career that wasn't like on the agenda either. So you had a lot more freedom as far as expectations or, uh, you know, later on, honestly, having just be like, Hey, this is our, job as well so we got to make sure we you know can pay rent and stuff none of that stuff was a factor then so the creativity and the uh just sort of you know taking chances it really was what it was all about that was the exciting part of it as at which you know at, you try to keep alive as things continue but at that era like at the very beginning i mean that's that's what was made that so special
2: Mm-hmm, absolutely and we'll, we'll pull on those strings a little bit more later but um you know focusing on you i know you were born in the uh you know, born and raised kind of in the boston or the greater boston area as it were um yeah. it, i i don't know do you have any siblings or are you an only child
3: uh, i had an older brother uh we uh were very different we got into music together but then he became like super athlete and you know was like a two uh sport uh division one you know college athlete and stuff like that um and uh, what's funny is honestly, he probably goes to more metal shows these days than I do. Uh, although pre pandemic obviously, but, uh, um, so yeah. Uh, but I got into music real early on. Like I started going to concerts at a crazy early age where I, a cool neighbor and cool uncles got me to like, you know, I saw early tours of like, I saw guns and roses on the appetite tour with Aerosmith. I got to see the cure really early on. I got to see just a bunch of stuff to, you know, getting dragged to shows with, and then my parents, some reason, started letting me go to hardcore shows when I was like 14. And that's when it all really changed, you know, <laughs> especially yeah, sure. in Boston that time in the early 90s. I mean, that was like the greatest place to, to kind of come up going to hardcore shows because, man, it, it was the scene was huge, but also became really eclectic, too. And I was like a little dude just absorbing it all and trying to survive.
2: And I, I think it's very, uh, you know, I, I agree just, I mean, coming up from the West Coast perspective. And then once I started to understand these, you know, geographical regions and how original, you know, especially like the Boston area where it's so wild to look at bands like, you know, Sam Black Church and like Only Living Witness and just being like, like, that was hardcore. That's high. like, that's wild. <laughs> and right, exactly what you're talking about, where it's like you had all of these, you know, disparate influences just pouring into your head.
3: Yeah, it was really all over the place where like it, it, what, that was what was great is, is, you know, there were sort of bands that were, you know, influencing each other and, you know, had some similar sounds, but man, it was all over the place. And I I don't really, I miss the very early days when it would be like, you know, hardcore kids versus metal dudes in the early, early Boston, you know, violent days. I was, when I was there, it was more all combined. You know, everyone was, I would go see, you know, leeway with, Kingpin and all these other bands that had totally different styles. And it was just opened your mind to so many different things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I know uh, just from, you know, some uh, internet research, like a professional uh, truly does, you (laughs) know, Uh, I I know that your parents were uh, teachers. Uh, What subjects were they teaching? Were they teaching elementary school, high school? What were they doing?
3: Um, My dad taught elementary school for uh, his whole time, mostly fourth grade. I think he might have bounced around a little bit in the early days. He was mostly fourth grade. And then my mom was a, a middle school special education teacher, and yeah, they taught for you know uh, for decades until they retired in, in Framingham, which is probably about 25 minutes uh, west of, of Boston. Um, so it's kind of, it's finally actually became a city. It's been big enough to be a city forever, but they refused to give up their selectmen and state of town forever. Some you know insider Massachusetts politics there for you, Um uh, sure. it did officially become a city. But uh, it was also a very diverse kind of community. I lived we lived about 20 minutes from there. Uh, thankfully my parents did not teach in the school I went to, cause man, I can't even imagine I wouldn't have gotten away with anything. It was a lot easier without them around. So uh, <laughs> so I'm glad they taught elsewhere, but uh, having parents for teachers, I, I think pushed me to not only got me you know, interested in things like literature and philosophy. And it was also, we, we had summers off, so we got to travel a ton that got the travel bug in me. Cause my parents always had that as well. So they really opened me up to a lot of things. They were, not musically, as far as playing, but they listened to tons of music, mostly oldies and old rock and roll and some jazz. But uh, so, it, but there was always music around the house.
2: So. No, that's cool. And I, I think too, when you have that experience as you did with um, you know education being important and kind of following that lead, but then also understanding that arts are important. I think you know that that you know clearly combines to create you as a person.
3: Oh, without a doubt that was a huge uh, there was a lot of freedom in that as far as intellectual freedom you know they would really let me explore my own ideas and they nurtured that for sure i my dad was driving overcast to some of our earliest shows when I think Mike D might have had a license but uh, he was the only one uh, and you know he would drive us two hours to western Massachusetts to play the Greenfield Grange on like a Sunday you know and uh man the best story I'll never forget we played uh I think Sam Black Church was headlining, and this band Drown, who uh, would go on most of the guys, Some of the guys were in, uh, went on to start One King Down down the road. But when they were drowned, they drove out from Albany, and my dad's filming, and he'd never seen us really play before. And the guys from Albany all of a sudden come in during our first song. They showed up late, got there, and we're talking fingerless gloves, DSI, long sleeves, and just full on like swinging mosh, you know, like style, like Albany hard dudes you know and right. my dad's just on camera just like holy shit they're animals you know just like losing his mind you hear him yelling in the back it's so funny and <laughs> after that he was just kind of like yeah that's your thing like i get it like I'm, you know not my thing but you know like, like you just crazy
2: <laughs> yeah so, totally totally it's like if you're into that brian that's cool i'm i'm yeah, exposed totally, to it like, I don't like, get it. Are
3: they trying to hurt each other? I'm like, well, not technically, but it's going to happen, you know?
2: <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a release, dad. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and kind of having that experience, like, was, uh, you know, being a teacher kind of ever in the cards for you at one point? Uh, you know, I was
3: a literature major, which is one of those degrees where you're like, I don't know what I want to do things. So maybe that was in the back of my head. I could go that way. But honestly, the patience that I saw them have uh, <laughs> as teachers, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, especially yeah. now i have two you know young kids i got a, a five-year-old and a, about to be eight-year-old and i am super patient with them on this level but i can't imagine an educational situation scenario so i i have nothing but the highest respect and esteem for the patience of teachers especially in this day and age where kids seem to make it as hard as possible and parents make it even harder <laughs> so uh but it would have been nice to jump right into like maybe you know college professor style but i don't think i could have gone I don't think I had it in me to go through the the ropes to get there
2: sure sure no I totally get that And, uh, you know, kind of seeing how, like you said, all these different musical influences, you know, started to participate in your life. uh, I'm going to guess that there were a few, uh, you know, I'm using air quotes here, maybe like musical Sherpas for you, (laughs) you know, people, whether it was like your older brother that was, you know, kind of taking you to record stores and shows and stuff like that. Or, you know, who, who were those people for you as they started, you know, you started to become more educated on music overall?
3: Yeah, you know, early on, it was my neighbor, uh, his name was Jamie Shanahan, and he uh, actually was my first guitar teacher, uh, and he turned me on, and, and this is when I was real little, to like Kiss and Rush and Van Halen and things like that. And uh, so, we, honestly, getting exposed to like Rush, uh, the technical side of that, you know, at an early age, I think kind of prepared me down the road, uh, And but also the theatrics of Kiss and seeing all that was crazy. Uh, so he was probably the first one, and that put me on that kind of rock and roll path. Um, but then, uh, really meeting uh, Mike D, who you know I went on to start Overcast with, and who you know is now in Killswitch Engage, I met him skateboarding um, at my friend's ramp in my town. He had come to visit. I think he was friends with the dude's cousin or something like that. And we started talking, and I had gotten into punk rock mostly through Thrasher and through skateboarding and things like that. So I knew all the big names, you know, the Misfits and, you know, Black Flag. And I'd even found some youth crew stuff like Youth of Today. I think I got the, the Breakdown the Walls cassette free with Thrasher. And that kind of turned me on to Revelation Records. But I didn't know, like, that there was, like, a local hardcore scene or anything like that. I played a battle of the bands with a punk band and stuff like that. But I didn't know. And he's just like, hey, man, you want to go see this band, Leeway, this weekend? And, like, we went to the channel in Boston. And that was changed everything. And then he started, you know, showing me all these other, you know, more underground bands and a lot of the kind of Boston local bands, like, you know, <clears throat> finally find it, you know, just all the seven inches and everything else that he had, I started devouring going through and that we started overcast probably two weeks after meeting. He, he had a bunch of riffs from an old thing he was doing. And I was like, I want to be in a band that sounds like the Cromags, And he's like, so do I, let's do it. You know? <laughs> so he was that first real, uh, kind of musical sherpa i guess you'd say uh, uh in that in the heavy scene of things and then but then it's funny because then from there we kind of started trying to discover new music together you know we both you know stumbled across neur- neurosis together and, and some of the darker heavier bands and and uh, things like that so we started discovering stuff together but he kind of kicked open a lot of doors for me early that i probably wouldn't have found on my own you know
2: Yeah, that's great. And especially, too, once you find that, you know, a friend or group of friends or whoever you're bouncing stuff, you know, with, you start to really bounce stuff off of each other. And, like, you say, oh, have you heard Neurosis? And you really get so excited
3: to show them something that they may be into that they haven't heard of, you know. But also, it's funny how hardcore then was so different because if you didn't have someone like that to be like, hey, check out these bands, you probably didn't find out about them unless you stumbled across them randomly later on. So even... Like, my little hardcore world was was relegated at first to that. Because it wasn't like you could get on, you know, now, you you know, if you're into, say, you know, Judge or something, you put it on Spotify and it'll tell you about 30 million other bands that that are, you know, in that world. Whereas before, like, if you didn't get a mixtape of a bunch of seven inches, you know, that was was what it was. And then you find a zine and, you know, read the thanks list of these other bands and find your own way. But it was really those people around you uh, that turned you on to these bands then. And it was so like regional that way. Like certain bands became huge in just like clusters of the scene itself. You know, where like my group of friends were all obsessed with this band, Arise, from our local area, and we thought were the, the greatest thing. And everyone, you know, how does no one in this world know? And they're like, well, because they've only played in this like you know literally <laughs> ten mile geographical area. You know, uh, so it's 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 funny how different that is now. But back then, it, it was like treasure hunting. You know. And you didn't need, you needed a map or at least saw, or a Sherpa to get you there.
2: You know? <laughs> uh, no, absolutely, and uh, that that regionality, you know, prior to the internet, you know, globalizing everything, it definitely, like you said, it was so interesting to watch that happen. Where it's like this band is the biggest thing in a forty mile radius. Like, to, don't, to go, yeah,
3: and it would be crazy, like that hardcore wise, especially like, dude. I remember you went to Providence, Rhode Island. If you saw the band Temperance in like 94, you would have thought they were the biggest band in the world. If they went to Connecticut, no one knew who Temperance was, you know. <laughs> like, right. was hilarious, you know. And Overcast, we learned that the hard way. Our first time we went out of Massachusetts or even the Greater New England area, the first few times, we're like, oh, okay, so like people don't just show up to every hardcore show. They have to like want to see you. We're like, okay, like, sorry, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, we're like, we got to spread the word that way. We got to start playing everywhere and knowing that, like, yeah, the... It was the ultimate time of the, the local hero. You could be just huge, and then as soon as you left your area, just fall completely off the map.
2: That, well, that's funny that you had that experience with, with Overcast, um, just because, you know, ostensibly, during that time, there was a little bit more proliferation of that music, especially, you know, whatever, Edison and very Distro, these distros. But well, When like, we got the, to that
3: level, that at least, you know, we, we did true. get a little more, like the first... You know, we did some tours that you've got to even call them tours or whatever in the early, early, early days. That, yeah, they were basically like we, we had pen pals with enough people to like get all the way to Maryland and back, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, once that's what's that's when things really changed for Overcast is uh, having uh, John Judak at very you know, Edison kind of uh, support the band. Because at that time, especially his distro was, was uh, for a lot of people how they found out about so much music and or found you know tracked down records by their favorite bands so by getting on that uh label and you know being label mates with Coalesce and Stark Weather bands that we not only were huge fans of but we wanted to like that's the way we wanted to be looked at and thought of and like you know in that kind of mold uh was huge for us so uh you know unfortunately you know John passed away way too early but man Judec had a huge huge imprint on the whole you know u.s heavy scene but definitely the east coast uh scene for sure he was a big 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 influencer back then
2: Mm -hmm. oh absolutely i I mean getting those very distro catalogs in the mail was like oh my gosh here's what i'm buying for the next year and his descriptions were the best like (laughs) you know like you could tell if if he was
3: not feeling something it was super obvious in the description even though he's trying to sell you the records as a distro he's still like that
2: yeah. Right. Yeah, cool. see <laughs> rate C rate afraid. copy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. Totally. No, it's fair. and and that, you know, ultimately helped you too because you were able to be like, okay, my taste is either completely aligned with this person that wrote the review or like I don't agree with them at all. So I'm probably going to l- listen to the stuff totally. that they yeah, did I'm, not I'm, like. I'm all in now.
3: Yeah, exactly. I'll show you this is great, you
2: know. <laughs> right, right,
4: right. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all want more time in our lives, you know, whether it's like, dang, I wish I had like another hour to, you know, play video games or read more or get outside or whatever it is. I know myself that I actually get questions a lot in regards to this podcast. How do you fit it in your day? And like, how do you do the interviews and all that stuff? To be able to then balance the rest of my life from my work and, you know, playing in a band and I have a family, all of these things. But that is why therapy is so awesome because it helps you be able to sort out your life to focus on the things that, for one, really matter to you. And two, try to find more time for those things that you love. That is why I love working with BetterHelp because if you need, to find a therapist, they're there for you. So give them a try. It's entirely online, it's designed to be convenient for you, and they can be suited to your schedule. And you fill out a brief questionnaire, matches you up with your own personal therapist, and if you do not like that experience, you can switch it, no problem, no questions asked, it's great. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. It's an offer just for you, the listener of this podcast. That's BetterHelp.com slash Ray.
0: Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long.
2: Band merch is the name of the game. And Rockabilia is the place where you need to buy all of your band merch. So first and foremost, use this code 100Words that gets you 10% off your order. And then plus, they know that this show sent you. Band merch is just the life's blood of bands of all shapes and sizes. And Rockabilia is the place where you can buy so much of it. You don't need to go to like 15 different websites. You go to one, you place one order. It ships you quickly, efficiently from the Midwest, independently run business. Over 30 years they've been around, and they have so much stuff. Like if you're into Bring Me the Horizon, Led Zeppelin, Have Heart, like whatever it is you're into, you will find stuff there. So please go to Rockabilia.com. 100 words, 10% off is the promo code not 10% off the promo code. You get it. hundred words is the promo code. If you need me to spell that out, I will one zero zero W O R D S, but go to Rockabilia. You will have so much fun there and get lost for hours and then come away being the savior of your household. As you're like, here you go, mom, here's a band shirt. Here you go, dad, here's a band shirt. Here you go, brother or sister. You can just shower all them gifts and then plus they'll be indebted to you forever. So go ahead and do that. And enjoy rockabilia.com. And so, like you said, you know previously, the idea of you know playing music as a uh, profession, it, you know, was a joke that wasn't even you know a gleam in anybody's eye at that point. Um, but you you know you were pursuing that pretty you know heavily as far as like obviously playing in Overcast and you know pursuing that. Was there um you know because you like you said you did get a degree in literature. Was there kind of like a life path beyond um you know just basically kind of pursuing the the band opportunities or was it like no nah, I'm just gonna do this because the band is obviously fun
3: absolutely no other plans whatsoever like at that point in my life uh i i did somehow graduate through college like it took me a little couple extra side classes here and there and i loved my experience at boston university but mostly just for the experience uh like i learned i did learn a lot in classes but i i met some incredible people and at that point music was all that i cared about not just making it i wanted to see it i was you know, not only playing hardcore shows almost every weekend or more, I was also going to see, uh, the Grateful Dead and fish whenever possible. So I was torn with a bunch of hippie dirtbags and, and BFW buses and, and then going to jazz and reggae shows all the time, jamming with anybody. You know, there were so many side projects. Uh, that was all I cared about. But like you said, I did not have any plans of or how to make that into something, you know, uh, uh, financially stable or anything like that i I just really did not care i was like i am gonna experience this a hundred percent uh and somehow figure out a way to you know pay rent or find a place to stay or something i when i the the last overcast tour i mean i came back and i've never been as broke as i was and i immediately had to take like two jobs to for like a few weeks straight just to like get any rent together like it was crazy but it didn't matter like i would have done it I, I, I continued to, the first opportunity I got to get into another band, I jumped into it, you know, <laughs> it was like, Oh yeah, well, cool. let's, let's see where this one goes. So, right. uh, there, right. but there was no safety net outside of, yeah, I did have a degree, but again, it was a degree in modern literature. You know, <laughs> I was like, I'll read that book for you.
2: <laughs> right. It was so, either be a te- so teacher. Was, or not
3: not the most, you know, yeah, not the most career based sort of, uh, uh, degree choice, but that was by choice. You know, I wanted to just learn. I was there to learn and just experience things, and then music just became the everything.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and, and kind of along those lines, like as you were pursuing all of these, you know, uh, by your parents probably definition, like all these weirdo things, and you know, uh, obviously. Y- 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 growing your dreadlocks and like all of these things that were pretty unconventional, um, you know, for, I, I presume in your, your parents estimation, you know, did they, I mean, clearly they were permissive enough to let you do these things because you did them. But was there any sort of, uh, you know, strife in a household of like, Oh, Brian, what the hell are you doing, bud? Like <laughs> what do you got going yeah, on? Yeah,
3: Like a little bit, but it was, they, I feel like they always thought I was going to land on my feet. And they, the one thing though, they were like, you need to, you know, get get a degree you need to do this if you're going to try and do these other things we'll you know help you in any way uh the hair thing they gave up on that battle super early like they're they're definitely pick and choose your battle people and they're like if he wants to grow his hair down the floor, that's that's his choice you know uh but yeah you know there was there was times probably you know in the late late 90s early 2000s when i first started you know playing with shadows fall where they're like, okay, bud, you know, you're not 17, 18 anymore. You know, <laughs> like, what right. is this going to be? And then, honestly, things did pick up pretty quick from there. Uh, like, where within a couple years, I was like, yeah, no, this is all I've had to do for a little while. And they are like, really? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm still living, like, basically one step above a cardboard box, but, like, I'm living. And then when we, you know, things picked up another level, they were like, okay, this is for real. Like, all right, you know. And then once you get to stick those two Grammy medals in your parents' face, you're like, see? Right. I told you. yeah. So,
2: yeah. Hey, hey, guys, I'm not an abysmal failure, okay?
3: And that's like the only thing they would actually – because I, I would tell them things that just wouldn't make any sense. you are like, oh, man, we're going to play with, you know, Neurosis Brutal Truth and, and uh, you know, Buzz Oven out in uh, Syracuse is the greatest show ever. And they're like, what are you
5: talking
3: about? <laughs> right. But then I'm like, hey, we got nominated for a Grammy, which honestly, which is hilarious, I forgot to tell my parents when it first happened, I just, it's kind of blanked on my mind. And like the neighbors told them and they're like, are you, are you serious? Like you finally, like, really, you're going to, you, know, you forgot to tell us that you were nominated for a Grammy. I was like, "Oh well, yeah.
5: right.
2: so, you know, yeah. you, right. You told us uh, about all, all these dumb shows you played. Right. We
3: so excited to be label mates with, you know, like Christian, but you, you know, like didn't like think to tell us that you were nominated for a Grammy. Like. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. You're like, hey guys, the priorities are obviously in line. Okay, <laughs> totally. the um, you know, and focusing on on shadows fall too. The you know, the business implications that started to you know circle the band, and you know, obviously even overcast as well in regards to you know putting out records and like actually getting you know paid money for shows, even if it was a hundred dollars. You know, how how has your relationship been with the the business side of things? Like, is that something that you um, you know, kind of uh, unwillingly participate in? Do you kind of try to keep it at an arm's length? Like where, where does your head kind of sit? And I presume it's evolved over time.
3: Yeah. You know, at, at first I really, I wanted to keep it as DIY as possible because, you know, I really kind of came up in that, like, you put out your own records, you book your own shows, you know, you find your own way sort of uh, approach. Uh, but then honestly, Things Once they started getting to a level, I was like, oh, whoa, there's a whole lot of mechanisms behind the scene if you want to take it to another level where I wanted to learn them. But at first I was kind of like, all right, I'm willing to sit back and watch as well. So for the first few years, especially in the beginning of Shadows Fall, we were lucky to have a few mentors type of scenarios of some people who had at least a little experience, but also were learning and but like very excited to learn. So uh, the first guy that really kind of got us on our path that way, it started in the Overcast days, this guy, Morgan Walker, who was a a publisher. And some people have had some really did not have great experiences with how things ended with him down the road, just as far as some contractual stuff and owning rights to certain things. But at the time when we first met him, the idea that you could get publishing from like, college radio was insane and even if he was getting a big percentage we didn't care because we didn't know how to get it what it was why they would pay us that's insane you know like what what do you mean they'll just give us money for playing our stuff on the radio great yeah and so we started learning about that side of things he actually helped us negotiate our first deal with century media and wow they didn't like him at all (laughs) 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 there was a very cookie cutter template for record deals that cm first had you know i think more out of the European office at the time because I think they had, you know, more control of them, uh, where it was like six albums, you sign your publishing over to uh, their company, and that's that. And we were just like, nah, we're good, you know. So like luckily Tom B. You know, who signed us to Tension Media, wanted us so bad that he was like, I'm gonna go to bat, we're gonna try and change the way things are done here. We wanna get fans that we can grow with and you know, create a career, not try and control their career. And once we had someone like that on the A and R side. And someone like Morgan, who really understood the legalese in a way that they were not super psyched about, um, hammered out a contract that was so good for us. Because not only could we put out stuff, you know, a good amount of records guaranteed with Century Media, it freed up stuff for them, honestly, as well, I think, by not having these, you know, this giant commitment if things didn't work out as well. So it really, I think, worked out for everyone. But it was a battle at first. So, uh we learned a lot through that process. And then uh, we started working with uh, this guy, Dave Ciencio known as the Rev, uh, who was originally our kind of like radio promotions guy through the company, the syndicate. And we were the first band he managed, but we saw in him we were like, man, this guy kind of gets not only how to market, he gets how to, you know, work with people and he's got a passion for this. And, and we needed people who has, had a very similar approach to us. Uh, and he really had, showed us like, Hey man, you guys could like do this for real. Like, you know, we could find ways to make this like your life. And we were like, that's all we want. So once we kind of had that original team and we started trying to, we, we never worked in the loop on anything those days. Like we wanted to be on every email. We wanted all five guys to at least have the right to make a decision on something. If they wanted to just be like, don't care, fine. But everyone, no one had the excuse if something was done without them seeing it. And we kept that up till the end, which slowed things down sometimes, but was the only way we kind of knew how to do things, you know?
2: So, yeah. No, that's, I, I, I appreciate you articulating that because I do think that, you know, uh, a lot of people get lost with the notion that it's like you have this, you know, shadow cabal working with a band that's like pulling all the strings, and the band is just like, you know, oh, yeah, we're yes men. We'll do whatever our manager says. And it's just like, no, you guys operated that way like each band is a different structure and that was a structure that worked for you guys
3: totally and that was just we we, we were all had done stuff on our own with other bands that we kind of like you know you felt like you knew a little bit and i'm like and i also want to learn more so that that literally spun off where I, I at one point i had even started my own uh radio and press promotion company and you know i thought about getting into management and maybe even some label stuff down the road but you know honestly the band just became too busy at that time granted 10 after 15, 20 years in the business, by the end of it, I'm like, I don't really want to. I'm glad that didn't become the other day job, you know, like down the road, because I was pretty burnt out on just the whole hamster wheel of the music industry at that time. But uh, I can't imagine going into it uh, not being hands-on at that time. That was just how the only way we knew how to do anything. But also, we were like, man, we're not some major label hit factory. Like, we need to create that, like, sort of... Iron Maiden business model, where you can make a career off of just the quality of the music and your hard work touring. You know, we wanted to just be that band that was always working and always just sticking to a, what we wanted to do, and uh, and luckily, you know, we were able to for a long time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's something i also find interesting uh, you know kind of about you as a person and, and the the personality that you uh not only exude on stage but you know are uh, by all accounts <laughs> mutual friends existing alongside of you where it's just like you know you it, generically speaking you are a nice dude but like <laughs> but shadows fall definitely kind of uh you know, for lack of a better term like built a big tent where you guys were trying to welcome as many people as possible like to shows there was not a lot of um you know i guess m- for lack of a better term, like metal posturing. Um, I'm going to guess that that was something that really, you know, was just sort of hardwired, not only in you, but the the rest of your band's DNA that it wasn't like, Oh, Hey, you know, we're going to wear costumes on stage or whatever. Not, Throwing shade against people that do that because that's oh, their totally. vibe. That,
3: that, but, that's just what you can tell if you're faking something like that. And those, that's when it doesn't come off, when it comes off like gimmicky, you know, where the, the band's just like, oh, the thing is to wear masks. Okay, cool. We'll wear masks, you know. Like you, you can tell when that's just thrown at it. But for us personally, yeah, we were, you know, I've heard uh, way back that's described as kind of like everyman metal. You know, we were just like dudes, you know. <laughs> and I was right. like, yeah, man, I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> like, uh, And we did want our shows to be fun. That, that was a big thing that, like, man, lyrically, like, an album, like, you know, The War Within is pretty intense, like, for me, and just looking back, the songs are pretty heavy, but that wasn't our vibe, like, on stage or even, like, at the merch table or at the, well, definitely not at the bar afterwards. Uh, we wanted, we were there to, like, be like, we are here to rock and or roll. Like, we, we never had the very elitist metal vibe of, like, Oh, we don't even enjoy our own songs. They are so grim. You know, like, like we, that just wasn't us. Uh, but we also weren't, you know, we weren't trying to ram a specific message down someone's throat either. Like I used to love going to see, you know, some of the more hardline bands back in the day, like earth crisis or, or, you know, whatever it was, you know, who had a very defined message. And that's great in that scenario. But again, wasn't the five of us. So to, you know, we, what, what we're like, what do we love about this? We're like, man, we like driving around the country playing metal drinking beer and meeting people, you know? And sort of like, cool, that's
2: our vibe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You're like, let's boil it down to the simplest of terms. Like, oh. here we go. Yeah. And, and, and I think that not only just from a, whatever, a calloused, like business perspective that clearly ha- gives you the opportunity to, you know, bring more people in. But I think, you know, looking at the flip side of that, I think because of all of your influences and the way that you guys were approaching, you you know, the creation of the music is that you did not care where people came from. Like if they were a hardcore kid or a metal kid or whatever, it's like, you just wanted them there.
3: Totally. And and like you said, there are good and bad things to that. When you are of a subgenre, especially if it's blowing up at the time, you know, your place, you know, the tours you can do, you're going to kill it there every night, you know? And thing is, there might be a shelf life on how long that's the thing or whatever. But you have that thing. Shadows Fall straddled a lot of those things, you know, uh, for better or worse. Uh, It was great that if you look at our first three real tours in a row, we did a tour with Christian Dismember Cataclysm. uh, So Brutal Death Metal, which we were by far, honestly, the softest band on that bill. (laughs) Um, The next tour was with King Diamond. So we went right to traditional metal. And then the tour after that was with Glassjaw. So those were our first three tours in a row. And we're like, man, we just covered a lot of ground. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> and we did. We kind of picked up people along the way, at each one, because, like, you know, we had the guitar solos for the the old school metal heads and enough melodical vocals to, to pull them in and maybe show them something a little heavier than they were used to. And then for the death metal dudes, we had enough blast beats and death metal stuff to get But maybe we turned them on to something a little more melodic. And the hardcore kids, we had enough mosh parts that they could hit somebody too. But also, hey, we're like, man, I, got, I didn't realize I like guitar solos. Now I do. You know, <laughs> so uh, it really, at that time, especially when everything was bubbling over in the U.S., you know, in the early 2000s, you know, heavy music-wise, we were in a great place for that because we had kind of dipped our toe into so many things and introduced ourselves to so many different scenes that when things blew up, you know, we were luckily uh, right there.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're in the position. And because, you like to your point, you put in the work. It wasn't like you, you, know, you, you carved out your own I'm not saying any spot. Of these tours were even, that's what's funny. is
3: like people see some of the bills from back then. I always love that. They'll see a lineup and be like, whoa, In Flames, Nevermore, Shadows Fall, Burn It Down. That must have been insane. Wait, Killswitch played their first show? I'm like, yep, that was upstairs at the Palladium, 200 people. Right, <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, "No, that that'd be a festival now." I'm like, "Well, yeah, it was not in 2000." You know, <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> totally, yeah. People people barely knew who these bands were for, you know, whatever reason. Yeah,
3: totally. Yeah, but it was just awesome that, like, you know, you got to do those kind of tours on that level where you really got to know those bands. So as things did progress, it was kind of cool to see a lot of those guys come up with you and supporting you, and we all the beauty of that scene, it was it was very if we get a leg up we're, we're putting a hand down to pull someone with us. And that was I mean, especially between like us and Kill Switch Engage and Hate breed and, and Lamb of God and like the bands that we've actually like came up with and were good friends with, we all were doing that. And when everyone got a shot, we always tried to kick it down and then whether it was to you know, any of the bands we knew, earth you know, all the remains, anybody, we all tried to kind of keep that vibe going.
2: Sure. Well, it, it's the you know a, the active participants of this you know particular DIY scene. Like I don't care what that means. Like you know every one of those bands that you listed all came from you know similar ish backgrounds. Where it's like yeah, you're playing right. You're playing in a VFW hall in front of four people. It's like yeah, that's you know that's yeah. We, that's we would, that's a vibe. it's
3: Funny. We, we would we do it. Uh, go on tour with some bands who didn't do that. Who would come up? You know, kind of like maybe you know. Perfect example is 2003 Ozfest second stage. There was a lot of these major label bands on their first record, and they would be given tour support and put on a bus and sent out on an Ozfest. And, you know, we're like, what's well, tour support? You know, like, <laughs> <So>, wait, <laughs> they give, wait, wait, they gave you money before the tour to pay for things? We're like, oh, no, see, Century Media made us give them an EP to do this. You know, we have to, right, right. We have to pay them. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> um, and, and they, those guys halfway through the tour would be complaining about stuff or not, you know, like things would be going wrong and they couldn't handle it. And we're like, man, this is like candy land for us. Are you kidding me? Like we, I've literally played the basement of a bakery, you know, like, <laughs> right. this place has catering. What are you, you're insane if this is a problem, you know, right. uh, and <laughs> yeah. you just kind of see the the gears grind up some of those people who just weren't ready for adversity because, you know, it hadn't had to deal with it. And then we're like, man, we've seen it all, you know? <laughs>
2: yeah absolutely for sure the uh kind of hitting on that same tip like the you know the perception versus the reality of you know being a band on the rise like the moment that you know whatever you get on headbangers ball everyone you know from the public perception perspective looks at you guys and being like oh so like you know you guys are like millionaires you know
3: like <laughs> i always love so how much money did you make off the videos on mtv you're like Okay, you don't understand how this
2: works. No, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, we didn't, we didn't get paid for that. That was called yeah, no, exposure. No, not, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly.
3: That's the classic. oh, we got paid in exposure. You
2: know? <laughs> right. Exactly. I I can tell you how much exposure uh, you know paid for my child's college education. the Zero dollars. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like
3: yeah, I'm being exposed everywhere, and I'm being in like unfortunately my uh, zero bank account is being exposed as well. You
2: know. <laughs> right. So uh, when I mentioned that, like what what's the kind of Uh, I guess, starkest contrast. Like, I mean, you guys were gladly participating in it, even though it was like, oh, yeah, this is rough, but this is all still, you know, part of our overall.
3: A A perfect example is is like, Ozfest 2003 was one of the best times of my life. They were the best shows we were playing. So during the day, you're playing to, you know, thousands and thousands of people in this huge place with all these huge bands, and you feel like the biggest rock star in the world, and you realize you're like, we're not getting paid, you know, like, and you're like, trying to like just scrounge up stuff to like, you know, just get food when you're, when you have a day off or like figure out what you're gonna do. And it's crazy where you're like, you're like, this is the biggest we could possibly imagine music being for us. We never even thought we'd get to this level. Oh my God, we're going so broke, you know? <laughs> sure. And the other thing that's great, I, I, my, my favorite uh, whiplash from those things is when you do play an Oz fest one day, and then you do an off date in like some like, Tertiary market, you know, like in the middle of nowhere, you know, because you can all you can only play so many thousand miles away from the next Ozfest. So you go from like, you know, an amphitheater of 15 fifteen, twenty thousand people to like just playing, you know, like some barn somewhere, you know, to like eighty-five people with three of the bands from that tour, and your buses are parked out front of it, you know, and you're like, oh yeah, Ozzy's like not here, so there's not twenty thousand people that's
2: right you know? <laughs> right yeah like we 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 are clearly a uh you know a, a sideshow to what is actually happening
3: totally like and it's like you know we're getting our name out there, but you just re- you, you just realize that but the perception of anyone who saw you that day is like oh man i saw you take a golf cart to the stage man you're you know you're a rock star and you're like
4: yeah
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so that's
2: Um, and so, you know, as you you started to you know have all of these different touring experiences, you know, from festivals to you know the the ebbs and flows of the natural band life, um, you know, for you, when did I guess the touring aspect start to kind of uh, wear on you? Where it's like, you know, being gone 250 days out of the year, when I have this, you know, all of these relationships I'm maintaining at home, and you know, clearly, I mean, like you mentioned, now you have you have children. Um, when did that I guess pull start to happen for you? Of like. This is not exactly the, um, you know, the experience that I was anticipating some, you know, 10 to 15 years into it or whatever.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I really did love even the grind of it for, for, for a long, long time. The first time I remember feeling like almost fatigued and it was it was a combination of everything, you know, the business, the touring, the, the pressure of, of just follow ups and all that was probably like 2007 when we had kind of signed to a major label and we were kind of you know where is this going to go from here and i remember just like being just so exhausted you know like just in every way for a little while and it took me literally just being like i, got, I just gotta be home for a minute and just recharge and we did, we were smart enough to do that we were coming out of the studio recording threads of life and we were supposed to go right to europe before we'd even finished tracking and we were gonna have to fly back and finish something And we were supposed to go to Europe with Killswitch Engage. And and I was like, man, this is the first time I'm ever saying no to something. You know, I was like, I cannot do it. Like, I need, let's just finish this record and rest and be excited about music again. You know, and thankfully we did that. And then the next tour we went out on was with Stone Sour on the Jaeger tour. And it was super blast and kind of got me right again. And I was like, all right. Then years after that, uh, the first time that it really hit me that I couldn't keep doing it was I was on the Metal All Stars tour in uh, in Bulgaria, and I watched my daughter crawl for like pretty much the first time on Skype, and was like, Ugh, this is too much." You know, I was like, <laughs> "Right." It, it would be one thing if we were, you know, making millions of dollars and I could fly the family here and there and things like that. But I was like, the way we do it, it's ten months out of the year, nine months out of the year, especially then in two, you know, the early 2000 kind of era when record sales were just non-existent, you know, anymore where you didn't, was back in the day when we were selling a good amount of albums, especially on a label like century media, uh, you know, you could supplement your touring income with actual record sales and, and, you know, royalty checks and things like that. Once that dried up, if you want to be in a metal band and make money, you have to tour. It's you have to sell t-shirts, you know, (laughs) you got to move cloth, you know? Uh, So I just saw that. I was like, I I cannot be gone that much anymore, uh, and that's that was really the, the the final sort of feeling of it.
2: Sure, sure, and, and you, you know, hitting on you know a couple last things the idea that you still care about music because like you know ostensibly <laughs> and i know you're always going to like care about music but like there uh, you know there's some study that went around a couple years ago where it's like i think the age is like and i think spotify commissioned it where it's like 32 years old is when people kind of check out of checking you know listening to new music or whatever and that's you know your average person or whatever but like you are still are not only deeply engaged with the music you know of your youth and obviously as you were coming up but then you know you're still checking out new bands and you're still a- an active participant um and this may sound simple but like why do you still care
3: <laughs> uh, you, I, I just it's in my dna like i'm literally gonna go on thursday and friday of this week and record uh vocals for the downpour project that i, I started with some of the guys used to play in earth and a few other boston bands because i just i am playing in a band in st louis called hell night and uh, we just did a little live stream thing and i i can't stop <laughs> like, it's funny because i remember after overcast i was like man that was a lot, you know, I think I'm done. And for like, a half hour, you know, I thought that <laughs> <And> <laughs> literally, Matt Pashand, when Overcast played our last note at the tune in, in, uh, in Connecticut, I think there was still probably feedback. He's like, Hey, man, you want be in Shadow's Fall? <laughs> I was like, can I change my shirt first and then let you know, you know, like I was just <laughs> covered in sweat, like couldn't breathe, just trying to like, put to rest something that I dedicated myself to for like, you know, the last eight years. And of course they're like, at the end of that, I was like, yeah, man, I'll give you a call tomorrow. Probably. Like, yeah. I'm probably in, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, it's I, just and always it just you. happens now. I got to St. Louis. And the last thing I thought about was playing in a band from around here. And, uh, I went and saw uh, hell night play. Cause I I'd, I'd met a few of the guys and, and was skateboarding with the guitar player. And as soon as they started playing, I was like, Oh man, I was like, well, Good thing they got a singer because that's a band I would actually join. And then the singer was like, Hey, man, I think I'm leaving. You should, you know, you should jam with these dudes. I was like, Damn it. And I'm <laughs> back <in the> band. <laughs> no, and, and that honestly. funny, just the most brutal stuff I've done, too. That's what's even more hilarious. I'm like, Really? So I get a here as I go older? Right. <laughs> I thought I'd just start a reggae project and be able to not sweat. And like, you know. Yeah, like,
2: no. totally right yeah it's like I, I think you're supposed to make the transition into uh, you know your uh, electronic uh, chill music phase but yeah that's totally. not the case
3: I would always talk about that with uh, Corey from God forbid he's like man I want to get out of this heavy metal so I can just put on a smoking jacket and play some jazz at the Marriott and like just chill <laughs> carry a three piece there's three drinks that's all I want <laughs> so, like, you know, but we're both you know, he's in a band again now I'm in a band again so that's what we do
2: yeah you no that, yeah that's your lot that's your lot in life <laughs>
3: Yeah, exactly. I, but as far as touring again, I don't I don't ever see myself being a full-time touring musician again. Um but uh it it is that that's unless you're at a certain level it, it can become a young man's game where man I, I thought of just like cramming into a, a van for like weeks at a time just oh, it, it almost gives me PTSD a little bit, but man I loved it at the time, but
2: ooh. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. doing that now, right, right. Yeah. yeah
3: exactly. <laughs> I was like, let's do fly in weekends, you know, I'll see you at the hotel. <laughs>
2: right. No, for sure, for sure, uh, and kind of. I mean, I know I'd be remiss if I did not obviously talk about your dreads because literally every person who's ever interviewed you, I think, it's a prerequisite. <laughs> but the interesting thing, and this is actually something I was discussing. Um, I had a Thomas from Strike Anywhere uh, on my podcast, like I don't know, two years ago or something. But you know, he has dreads as well, and uh, I honestly Amen. never really thought about the concept of, you know, why, I mean, he, cause he, he articulated the story of, you know, why he grew dreads in the first place of just, you know, the connecting the Rastafarian culture and like, you know, clearly uh, white people with dreads, like that is a whole different meaning than, you know, how the Rastafarians originally grew their hair from a dreadlock perspective. Um, I, I'm going to guess that like over time, like, you know, maybe initially it was aesthetically like, or maybe it was because of that uh, you know, initial exposure to Rastafarian or whatever. Um, you know, has your, I guess, relationship with your hair, I know that sounds like silly to say, but like, has that uh, kind of changed trust, over time? I have
3: a relationship with my hair when it's literally, when there's a person standing behind you at all times that like almost touches the ground, you have a relationship with it. Yeah, so <laughs> that's, that's a totally valid way to replace that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, as far as for, for me, you know, initially it, it did come out of uh, seeing, you know, HR from the Bad Brains. And uh really for me, it's funny, it wasn't even Bob Marley, it was Bunny Whaler, was the like the first sort of reggae artist where I was like, you know, just captivated, you know, and and then I started really like reading more about it and learning about it. And uh for me, it became a way to not only capture the passage of time, but sort of keep that living diary going. You know, some people get tattoos of very experience, uh for me, it was just connection to not only everything I'd been through and learned, but it also showed me kind of where I was going and, and also a a reminder to stay connected to just the earth. Cause you know, to me, they, they feel like roots, almost like, you know, like almost like spiritual roots that can stay connected on like almost sound like avatar there or something, you know, but, uh, uh, sure. Uh, Ah. just that kind of thing. And, uh, um, I was joked when I learned everything there is and I figure it all out, I'll cut my hair. So plan on burying me with like hair that goes on for miles, you know, because there's so much more to learn. You can never figure it all out. You never will. You should always still be searching. So this is kind of like that reminder of that. Now, granted, when it gets stuck in the car door every time I'm at the grocery store and I get, you know, my neck snapped, it does make me think maybe there's another way to do that, you know? Uh, but, (laughs) (laughs) But, but here we are. And anytime I've never really, lot of cutting them but so it's what's weird is the idea just is never there I, it, I feel like one day it will and they'll probably come off that day you know like and where you know sh- the head will be shaved and that'll be that but it's just uh it still feels natural and and right and and like i'm still heading somewhere with it so
2: yeah no i, I appreciate that Uh, you know the description of it because I I think that you know when most people kind of look at aesthetic choices whether it's you know something like what you have done or whether it's like you know wearing x's on your hands like that is a a, both of those are statements and that is a broadcast to the world of what you espouse and so I think people that you know would look at you just be like oh dude like you're just doing that because you know whatever you think you look cool and it's just like well no, it's more than that, buddy.
3: Yeah, indeed, if if I thought it was just going to look cool, they would have been trimmed a long time ago. Because man, there's there's some hazards involved, you know. Gotta, yeah, gotta watch out with power tools and open flames and all that stuff.
2: So. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you you've learned all the the, the pitfalls as it were. It's
3: exactly. It's like having a tail now. You got to know how quick you can go through doorways and stuff. So
2: right. Um, but yeah,
3: you know, and I, it's funny because uh, you know people do you know come up and say things, and people are like, "Oh, I'm sorry to annoy you," but I'm like, I'm like, it's it's some it's not something you kind of see every day. So I totally get it. And I'm also like, you know, if I, you would have, I would, you know, it's like I have it like hidden, like, Oh, I don't want you to, t- you know, mention it or talk about it, you know, but so it's, it, it can spark some good conversations and whatnot as well. Uh But it is, it's funny, you know, become, it does become like, sort of your signature as well. Like, you know, like people, like I can't imagine a shadows fall show without the hair spinning around. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, no, I, it would just be me looking more like Scotty and headbanging. You know, probably the music <laughs> would sound just the same. You know, like
2: <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. But yeah, that, and to your point, that idea of being able to spark discussion where people that may not have any idea what, you know, anything in relation to, you know, punk, hardcore, independent trains of thought, like you're able to engage with the person to be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, just look this up on the internet at home and your, your mind will be blown.
3: Indeed, indeed yeah it's anything that can spark that sort of conversation is always a good thing
2: yeah absolutely uh the last thing I want to hit on was the notion you know because you are you know a father and you are are still um you know very connected to this you know independent train of thought where it's like okay you know <laughs> clearly I did not follow the, the the path of life that most people, uh, you know, do. And then, you know, watching your kids grow up and understand that, you know, hey, my dad looks different and my, <laughs> my dad plays in a band and all that stuff. You know, how, how does that kind of, uh, you know, uh, I guess, play a part of your parenting? Because I imagine that is a, a thought that goes through your mind a lot.
3: W- without a doubt. You know, it, it's it's funny because uh, it, both myself and my wife, she's, uh, you know, an artist who owns her own business and, you know, creates her own textiles and, and, and and all that, and has always been incredibly creative. Um, and then, you know, I've always, you know, kind of been dedicated to, to music and different things. Uh, it's really reminds us that, you know, you have to let people stumble along and find their own thing, but giving them that bedrock to start from. And, you know, I, again, being raised by teachers, I, education was always a big thing. So that, to, uh, to me, they're not separate, you know. Uh, but as far as it being having to be, contained in a traditional way, that's, I have no problem with them finding their own way through that, whether it's, you know, not a traditional college experience or by, you know, traveling to learn, like all those different things that I'm very open to because I've met so many people who have reached their goals or uh, evolved uh, themselves in such just different ways, you know, and in, in such a, a wide variety of avenues to get them where they needed to go that I'm very open to them finding that but that does not mean that they're getting away with anything, you know, like I, like, <laughs> totally. I, still, I still have the hammer of justice available whenever needed. And, uh, and they know that, you know, like, like, uh, it's funny cause we look, me and my wife, she's got dresses, like, like, you know, pretty hippie dippy couple. And we're probably, you know, we're not strict in the, you know, that sort of old school sense, but like our kids got rules, man. They like, and they got to work, they got to do things. And like, we're we're both very hard working people and they got to get some of that work ethic in them as well and uh you know but man they're both already such just amazing little people and, and getting so creative in their own ways uh they've followed me down some path where they both started skateboarding things like that but then they branched out and you know like they're doing their own things as well uh with with different you know sports and things like that as well so it's it's cool they both love music and used to be really into like family circle pits and like listen to a lot of old hardcore, but man, of course, just like every other kid, they're starting to rock all the, all the stuff on the radio and all that. And you can't fight it. You know, you got to let it happen, you know, yeah. and then I'll let them, but I, at least, you know, our record collection is pretty eclectic here. So they, they hear a little of everything. So, um, but yeah, it definitely, I, I'm glad I had that DIY spirit. I'm glad I, I saw so much of the world, that also reminds you how people are so similar, no matter how different things have gone in their lives, you know, by traveling the way I have, you really see such a connection with people and realize, you know, that, that, man, I'm just going to help them find their path. And then from there, just support them on it. Uh, and just remember anytime that, you know, that I forget that, like, Hey, if I didn't, wasn't given certain opportunities, I wouldn't have been who I was. And sometimes you gotta, you know, maybe ease those reins when it feels scary and let them kind of go. But, it is, it is what it is.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, it it definitely is weird. Just the, the notion of, you know, parenting Uh, coming from the background that we did.
3: I was going to the channel in Boston when I was 14 years old. My daughter's now eight. I'm like, that was only six years later. Like no way, no way in six years would I allow her to go see Slackshot at the channel. Like no, no way. She's not going to see these. She's not drive, driving in a car with when she's 14 with people she barely knows to CBGB's in New York to go to a hardcore show. Like it's not, that's impossible. But right. then i like, oh, yeah, but that's exactly what I did, you
2: know? <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, uh, may- maybe as long as I, like, know the venue. <laughs> yeah. Well,
3: that's what's funny is I was like, I would, I could take you to these places now, like, but it also would not be the same experience, you know, that, like, I had. I was fighting for my life. I was like, I'll get you on the side of the stage.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, totally, totally, yeah. You're like, I can take you to these places. Like, you know, yeah. uh, I know the guy at the door. I can get you in front. Yeah, totally. It. It's, it's a very different
3: experience. Well, that's what's funny. So for that, that, I'm worried about that, too, is, like, for Me that the danger and the like, oh my god, I, should I even be doing this was part of it. Where like my kids have already gone and saw like Jason play with Overkill, and like you know, they like met all the dudes in the dropkick Murphys and like all that stuff. So it's like, they're like, this isn't scary, this is dad stuff,
2: you know, <laughs> right? Totally, yeah. they would be like, oh, these are dad's lame friends that play <laughs> totally. it's, uh, it's
3: hilarious how that shifts, you know, because like, yeah, that was that was part of it. So like they'll find their own thing, you know, that way, you know, so right, yeah, let it happens.
2: no totally totally god who knows what that'll
3: be in 10 years god that's that's Uh, scary (laughs)
2: <laughs> yep I, I i think that's the scariest thought of just like yes. okay what <laughs> what are they going to bring home that's going to be so uh foreign to me and i just like i won't even know what to do with it
3: totally just having that it's happened to me moment like uh get off my lawn fine i said it
2: you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> no totally well brian thank you so much for hanging out dude i really appreciate it and uh yeah thanks for letting me pick your brain and all these uh oh, weird no, places no problem
3: man i really appreciate it and uh yeah it was a great talk man anytime
2: That was Brian for all of you fine people out there in podcast land. Thank you for listening to the show. And thank you very much for Brian for hanging out with me for an hour plus on a beautiful Tuesday or whenever it was that we recorded. (laughs) I can't remember. But, um, yeah, Brian – great dude check out all of his music if you for whatever reason have been living under a rock and have not listened to overcast or shadows fall um do yourself a favor and check that stuff out so i played overcast at the very beginning of the episode so uh yeah hopefully you'll uh, be able to get a little taste of it and then be like oh yeah actually why am i sleeping on overcast so next week is another legend in self described in my own mind, <laughs> Greg Anderson, who uh, runs the label Southern Lord Records, also played in a band on Revelation Records called Engine Kid, and they just recently. Released a six LP box set on Record Store Day, and so I talked to him a little bit about that. And then he also plays in the very um, enigmatic band called Sun. Um, him and Steve O'Malley. I uh, yeah. I when this opportunity came up to speak to him, I, I jumped at it because he also Greg also played in a band, a classic straight edge hardcore band called Brotherhood. And he's also re-released some really, really cool records. Like he re-released on Southern Lord, um, the uh, Uniform Choice, Screaming for a Change LP. Just He's done a lot of great stuff. And he also releases modern hardcore, like bands like Entry um, and uh, Dead in the Dirt. And he's released a lot of nail stuff. So there was a lot to talk to Greg about. So I sat him down and uh, asked him a ton of questions. And that's what will happen next week. So until then, please be safe, everybody.